Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Lots of podcasts coming in now because we know that no one does any work over Christmas. It's a time to skive off, to relax, to listen to podcasts. And we don't want you going short. No, we don't. So we've got some of the best communicators, some of the best historians in the world on the podcast coming up over the next few weeks and lots of exciting stuff. Please go to uh, historyhit.tv, um, gift a subscription this time of year. You may want to gift a subscription to your history mad relative or friend. They're all on there. If you use the code POD6, P-O-D-6, you get six weeks for free, so you can try it out. But if you go to our shop, History Hit shop, you can give a subscription to somebody. You can also buy a calendar. Now, there are two benefits of buying a calendar. One is that you will be able to find out what day of the week it is. In the middle of 2020, you're staring around, you wake up from a three-day bender, and you think, I don't even know what day it is. You look at the calendar, you know what day it is. You're back on an even keel. The second benefit is that it will sell some calendars and avoid huge embarrassment and self-loathing on my part. So everybody wins. Every single person wins. It's about 10 quid. It's the kind of gift I think you need to give to a non-core family member, the person that comes for Boxing Day. You're pretty neutral about them at best. Look, I'm not going to lie. This is not a, a, a gold-plated. This is not a Maserati. You're not going to get this for your nearest and dearest when you're in the lottery, but you are going to get it. It's going to fill a gap. It's a useful purchase. So head over to History Hit shop and buy a calendar. You're not going to regret it. I can tell you that. Everyone here in the UK has been following the ups and downs of the, or largely downs, of the impeachment process in the United States of America. It looks fairly certain that Donald Trump is going to become the third president impeached by the House of Representatives. Uh, Nixon was never actually impeached by the House. He resigned before that could happen. And we now move after Christmas to his trial in the Senate. Will he become the first president in history to be removed from office? It doesn't look likely, to be honest. It doesn't look likely. You've got to get a supermajority in the Senate, and the Democrats are a long way short of that. Anyway, this is a podcast about impeachment, but not joining the long queue of podcasts in your feed about which presidents have been impeached, how it all works, and why. This is unique. This is a podcast about the power itself. Where does it come from? What are its roots in late medieval England? How does it develop in England? How is it absorbed by the founding fathers and used to restrain their executive branch and their constitution? I went straight to the best. I went straight to the source, Paul Seward. He is a historian, long CV and of interesting and important jobs. He is the vice president of the International Commission for the History of Representative and Parliamentary Institutions. The acronym is sexy. Ick herpy. So there you go. Paul Seward is a man who's very, very kind. He's super busy this time of year. And he's the man to ask about the impeachment power. We're also going to find out why we don't hear about the impeachment power that much in the UK anymore. Enjoy. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. Paul, thanks so much for coming on. I know how busy you are. We've got impeachment. It's back in the news on both sides of the Atlantic. What does impeachment mean? Well, it, it, it's a good question. Um, impeachment is um, is normally regarded as a, as a process by which um, the House of Commons collectively makes an accusation against an individual, which is then 
sent to the House of Lords and the House of Lords judges are, are essentially judge and jury um, in the in in the process that follows. So it's an accusation by one house that's sort of dealt with by the other. It's it's a procedure that um, is essentially defunct, um, though we can talk about why and whether that's completely true um, later. But um, its its origins are, are, are go back to the Middle Ages. The the sort of commonly accepted beginnings of impeachment, if you like, come in 1376 in a parliament that's called the Good Parliament, when the House of Commons collectively make this accusation against various of the king's ministers and demands that they are removed from office and, and punished. It's not completely new, and and you know to be honest, the evidence that we have is so is is, is fairly poor about exactly how it happens and um, why it happens and so on. So we just have this sort of island of information in 1376 about about what happened then. That's that's very near the beginning of our parliamentary experiment. So is this all happening as Parliament is itself? exploring and defining its own role. That, that that's right. I mean, we usually think of Parliament as in in a sort of way as we know it now, or at least as you know some of the essentials of Parliament are, as, as being formed in the middle of the in the middle of the thirteenth century. So so here we are about a about a century and a bit later, looking at this this new procedure. I think what's what's probably new in the in thirteen seventy six is, is that you have the involvement of the House, explicit involvement of the House of Commons. So there are two. That there's a sort of two-level process going on, rather than a much more um, what seems to have happened before in various similar cases in which a prosecution is mounted in front of just the House of Lords. And that's partly because it's only sort of from the middle of the 14th century that you really have two separate houses. Before that, they're sort of operating together. So it's almost a function of the fact that you've got two houses that you get this this procedure that people are calling impeachment. I think probably it's crucial to, to recognise that it isn't as clear-cut a thing as um, we would like to think of it. It's not a it's not a sort of fantastically formal, legally defined procedure like you have in the United States these days. Um, though even that has its, um, its sort of rough edges. It's much less clear than that, and and people are arguing about how it should go on um, all the way through. And indeed, that that the whole history of the process of impeachment is one as much about procedural argument as it is about really arguing about the evidence. It feels to me like this is, well, we're talking about this addresses the, that age-old problem of how best to resist the exercise of, of overbearing executive power. Um, in, in Britain, we hear more about nowadays judicial review, petitions, elections, of course. Uh, was impeachment another tool which Parliament was trying to fashion, uh, give, giving, it, giving it more ammo against, against the executive branch? Um, yes, no, that's a very good way of thinking about it. It is, um, it, it's, it's very explicitly used, um, certainly in 1376 and, and in subsequent um, similar prosecutions in the 1380s as a way of attacking people who are very powerful um, and, and have the ear of the king. And there is a movement both in the country and among some of the people who think that they should be the king's chief advisers, you know, the chief magnates and, and barons and so on. So on um 
that these people should be removed from office. They have too much power. In 1376, it's William Lord, Lord Latimer um, and various associates who are uh, uh, Latimer's the Chamberlain and people regard him as corrupt and, and, and so on. Um, uh, in th- 1386, 10 years later, it's the, um, it's the Earl of Suffolk, who was the Chancellor of, of England. And so, um, so, you know, similarly accusing him of, of, of abuse of power at, in lots of ways so that's that's absolutely right however you know it's it's enormously capable of perversion um, like all of these procedures it's not you know it's not a fantastically lofty impartial process it's a very political process and it continues to be a very political process as you can see in prosecutions in the US today you know a, a, a lot of these things are dominated by by politics rather than by you know, ideas of judicial impartiality. So in in its origins, you're absolutely right. But, you know, because this is is done within Parliament and because people don't have a have a commitment necessarily to due process, um, there, there is a big problem with it. Though having said that, that is the problem that impeachment hits, that the people operating it, particularly the House of Lords, start to um, start to find that very uncomfortable, the fact that there is due process. And of course, it there isn't a a sense of due due process. And it gives those who are opposed to any particular prosecution, it gives them a very good way of opposing it to say, you know, hang on, you're you're not operating this process fairly at all. Has there ever been a time in British, well, uh, probably English history, when the impeachment process has become a regular and legitimate part of the Constitution? I think it's fair to say it's pretty well always been controversial. It became a lot more, a lot more organised and a lot more um, legally literate, shall we say. There's a big gap. Um, 1450 was the impeachment of the Duke of Suffolk, one of Henry VI's ministers and and, and chief sort of favourites, which sort of fails, though it accidentally succeeds because Suffolk's impeached and Henry VI stops the impeachment from happening. But the sort of quid pro quo is that the Duke of Suffolk has to leave the country and, and be exiled. And, and, and actually, in the process of doing so, he's, um, he's murdered. So the effect is rather, rather similar. But after that prosecution, there isn't another one for uh, 150 years or so. That's partly because the prosecutions within Parliament tend to become even more brutal after that. They, they tend to become um, uh, acts of attainder, which don't even require any, any sort of standard of, of hearing or proof. Or It's just a way of of sort of judicially murdering somebody, effectively saying by Act of Parliament that this person has committed an offence and should be executed and, and have his lands removed or whatever particular punishment is, is fixed on. So in the, in the sort of rather brutal times of the Wars of the Roses and, and under, the, under the Tudor kings, that, that tends to be how parliamentary prosecutions um, happen. Um, it's rediscovered. you giving people ideas here. <laughs> It would be a, a, a bad idea to do. I, I, I quite agree. Um, it would, I suspect, be against the European Convention on Human Rights. But um, <laughs> but I suspect if we get into that territory, we won't be worrying about the European Convention of Human Rights anyway. But it is it, impeachment is revived in the 1620s, and it's it's very unclear exactly exactly why that happens. Um, 
it's it's partly to do with people in the Commons, in the House of Commons, sort of trying to find ways of of pursuing individual um, government ministers and and alighting on this this procedure and thinking this is a great idea, and also overcoming the fact that the House of Commons itself has no sort of judicial role, it has no system for. Um, prosecuting people much as they'd like to where where they can see there's there's a a minister or or else in in particularly in 1621 which is which is when it's revived there are people who hold um monopolies i.e government contractors effectively who are creaming off a lot of money from the state um they can see that there are those people who need to be prosecuted and they can't think of a good way of doing it because they're protected by their patent or whatever um they light upon this this procedure of impeachment as a way of as a, a way of saying you know something has gone wrong here which we can't get at through the courts. Um, the House of Commons on its own can't do anything, but if it uses this procedure and, and complains about them to the House of Lords, and the House of Lords can judge it, can judge it, and so on. So, this is the great revival, particularly masterminded by Sir Edward Cook, who's the great early seventeenth-century uh, legal genius. Really, a, you know, a, a great, if rather an unpleasant man, I have to say, um, who really pushed this this procedure and used it. Uh, most famously, I suppose, against one of his enemies, um, uh, Lord Chancellor Bacon, in 1621, and, and, and succeeded in, in getting the Lord Chancellor to have to resign or be dismissed and, um, and be barred from office thereafter and was fined. Is there a sense that impeachment, unlike an act of attainder, is something that bubbles up from Parliament and, and, then, and so it doesn't depend on royal assent? There's quite a lot of truth in that, yes, absolutely. And in the um, impeachment procedure, it's the lords that do the judging and um, the king, in a sense, has to respond. There's an argument about about whether the king can pardon the behaviour for, for which somebody is being impeached. And that was, that was much an issue in a later impeachment in 1679 of the Earl of Danby, who, who was pardoned, the king... It, in between uh, the Commons starting the impeachment process and the House of Lords actually dealing with it, the King issued a pardon to Danby, and you know, a huge discussion about uh, how to how to proceed uh, as a result of this. Um, in fact, the House of Lords decided that they they were able to proceed, notwithstanding the the, the, the pardon. So you know that that pushed that issue out of the way. Um, so, so yes, I, th- I think that, that that's right. The converse problem, <laughs> of course, is that impeachment is a sort of judicial process and, and requires or came to require sort of common law standards of proof um, and common law standards of process. So your, your earlier question about um, the process becoming more organised, I think, I think that's absolutely right, or, or more... Um, they're becoming a more fixed procedure to it. it. It is absolutely right, and that sort of happens in the in the 17th century um, when people do worry about about these sort of things. And the and the, the post uh, post restoration impeachments um, 
the Earl of Clarendon in 1667, particularly in the Earl of Danby in 1678-79, are bedevilled by these issues. And actually the the attempt to impeach the Earl of Strafford, of course, in in 1641, um, they're all bedevilled by these questions of how many witnesses do you need? Should you imprison the person before the process of the trial has started? Um, questions like that are, are, are sort of crucial in the political debates going on around those impeachments and, and end up being sort of critical to the result. Um, the House of Lords objects to the idea that they should throw the Earl of Clarendon in the Tower of London in 1667 before there are even any charges against them. And the Commons say, well, how do you expect us to collect evidence against the Earl of Clarendon, a very powerful man, while he's still roaming at large and was, is able to threaten witnesses? Of course, what happens then is that Clarendon escapes to the continent um, and you know, the, the House of Commons says, well, you <laughs> know, Of course, this was bound to happen because you wouldn't let us imprison him. So, you know, all of those discussions are going on and and they make the impeachment process a really cumbersome process. It gets bogged down in these questions. Um, And that's why in in 1641, um, the House of Commons sort of gives up on impeachment and decides to go for for an act of attainder. The, The problem, sort of as you suggested earlier, is that it needs an act of attainder needs the king's assent uh, to 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 actually happen it needs that last last stage because it's an act of parliament and um the king was deeply deeply unwilling to assent to strafford's attainder but he does eventually because the political pressure is just irresistible so yeah on the one hand impeachment is very difficult to do on the other hand attainder is um is a is a, a drastic step um which uh, it avoids all of those due process problems, but hits the question of royal assent. After the after the wild seventeenth century, does the impeachment pro- process start to go quite dormant in the eighteenth? Curiously, not immediately, because impeachment becomes a wonderful weapon to use um, in the sort of great and glorious political fights of the early 17th century when you have you know, the development of Tory, Tory and Whig parties um, who spend you know, 25 years throwing brickbats at each other and impeachments become a weapon in this process, in this political process. The, the notorious ones are uh, particularly this, the uh, 1701 impeachment of the five Whig lords, the sort of key figures in Whig ministries in the 1690s, the, the key one of whom is, is Lord Summers. Um, and the Tories try to impeach them. A, a Tory-dominated uh, House of Commons tries to impeach them and a Whig-dominated House of Lords um, resists this process of impeachment and you get a whole uh, you know, a, a tedious process of, of, of legal and political manoeuvring over, over that in impeachment. 1717, there's a, um, 1715 to 17, there's the, it, it happens sort of the other way around. The Whigs try to impeach Robert Harley, the Earl of Oxford, a person who probably ought to be called the first prime minister very similar sort of played a very similar role to to Walpole the, to the one that Walpole did later during the reign of Queen Anne so there, there, there's uh, it, it becomes a sort of political football really um, there are other impeachments as well um, it's uh, interesting that the uh, that the government 
uses impeachment against some of the Jacobites who are captured in the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715 rather than goes through more conventional sort of trial routes. Um, and I think there's some evidence that they choose that because they don't, there is a lot of questions that they don't want um, brought out in a in a in a sort of they they feel it's sort of slightly unpredictable process in a sort of judicial trial, um, whereas they feel because they because of the political climate that they can get an impeachment through much earlier. So that's a sort of um, very political way of prosecuting uh, as a sort of fairly normal, fairly clear cut offence of treason, but it does. It does become much less common after that, after those sort of uh, high drama uh, early 18th century political years. Um, it then really collapses. The, uh, the last impeachment before the, the famous one, which I'll just come on to, is, is the 1725 impeachment of Lord Macclesfield, who is impeached perfectly reasonably for taking bribes as, as, as Lord Chancellor. And, you know, yeah, I mean, he had it coming to him, to be honest. Exactly. I mean, there's not much doubt about that. So it was a sort of generally accepted to be a reasonable use of the procedure and, and actually one that rather foreshadows the way it gets used in the American Constitution because it's a, a, an impeachment of a judge who's very difficult to remove um, in any other way. Uh, because of the, the sort of security of tenure that judges judges get, and um, so it's a it's a more straightforward and much less political case. But then, of course, there's the the Hastings trial, which um, is a huge event <laughs> and really really shows the absurdity of of impeachment in in within a, a becoming modern uh, judicial system. Tell me about Warren Hastings. Who was he, and why was he being impeached? Uh, well, Warren Hastings was uh, had been governor of India under the East India Company. Um, a huge long story to his 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 activities in in India, but it it is essentially um, uh, India is run by the East India Company. It's a it's a corporation. It's a it's a huge company, not a government organisation, but a private company. Um, and people are starting to get worried about that because it, it has become a, a, an enormous organisation. As I think anybody who's read William Darrell Brimple's recent book that can see how how it, it really rivals any state in in the the extent of its operations and 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 so on. Um, British politicians start to get really worried about it, it particularly after the East India Company has become the major combatant in. In India, against against the French and against the French, the the allies of the French during the War of seventeen seventy six to to eighty two, um, which of course is mainly the American Revolution, but is also the War of American Independence, but also extends right across the globe, and and there are big conflicts in in India. Um, what starts to come back from India to Britain are stories about the way Hastings is behaving in India. Um, the autocratic nature of his rule in India and British politicians are genuinely outraged by um, th these stories um, but there's also a political element to to it as well the the patronage of of Hastings and the East India Company by um, by certain British politicians and and, and so on so it, it all gets mixed up um, Hastings comes back 
from his tour of duty as as governor general in 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 1785 i think and quite quickly after that there's a head of steam largely raised by uh, edmund burke the the great political philosopher um and the sort of mastermind of the opposition in in british politics in, in during the 1770s and 1780s um burke really makes a makes a huge um, commitment to prosecute Hastings as much as a critique of, of colonial rule as anything else. I mean, he, he is genuinely outraged, but it's, of course it's seen as a, a potentially a good uh, way of beating the government about its head. And he's the one who sort of tries to build evidence against Hastings and and put this and get this impeachment going. It's probably it only goes ahead because Pitt, who is Prime Minister, William Pitt the, the Younger, his Prime Minister lets it go ahead. Um, it probably would never have uh, succeeded if Pitt hadn't given it the space to um, to proceed. Of course, it runs into enormous difficulties. The evidence is difficult to collect and easy to question. The process the, the the House of Lords, which in which the influential voices are really lawyers these days, there are lots of very significant lawyers are are by now in the House of Lords. Always demand due process and that common law standards of proof be um, be respected. And of course, given that most of the offences happened in India, that's that's very good, difficult to do. And so, famously, the trial drags on from 1788 to, to 1795, and in the end, Hastings is, is acquitted. He's ruined in the process. Um, everybody is fantastically bored by the trial, by the, by the end of the whole thing. I mean, at, at the start of it, it's a, it's a sensation. Um, such trials take place in, in Westminster Hall, not in the House of Lords itself. They, usually the Westminster Hall is, is, is made into a sort of huge courtroom for these proceedings to t- take place with stands, with seating for the House of Commons, um, seating for the House of Lords, but also seating for spectators and you get tickets and all of the you know the 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 Beaumont of of London turn up and 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 watch or at least they do for the first few first few times it happens and then everybody gets sort of sunk in the detail of of this of this thing and of course it isn't going on permanently from between 1788 and 1795 it happens for a few days every year um but it it ties up an enormous amount of resources and uh, and money and and effort and 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 really starts to to show that um, impeachment isn't going to work anymore. And is that why? And presume um, that, is that why subsequently uh, oppositions have tried to take governments down through ele- the politics of elections rather than the focused uh, sniping, the focused effort of impeachment. Um, yes, um, essentially. I mean, it, it's. Uh, it's a impeachment is a very cumbersome process. It's not, to be honest, it, since um, since Danby in sixteen seventy eight. Really, it hasn't been used against a sitting government. Um, it's been used as a as impeachment hasn't been used against a sitting government. It was really used against against people who had been already, in some ways, were had been taken out of power, and this was just a way of. <laughs> Of pursuing them even further, there's a sort of parallel process which 
which people did use um, when instead of impeachment, which was an address to the king to remove king or queen to to remove somebody from um, their councils, as as it's put. So so to say that you know, please sack this minister, um, and that's that's quite common from the sixteen seventies onwards. It was used um, regularly against a wide range of, of, of ministers before about 1700 or so. It seems to have gone slightly into, into disuse because in 1742 it's used against Walpole. Um, famously, he survives this vote um, requesting that George II removes him from office, but only quite narrowly, and, and actually he resigns subsequently when he loses, loses another vote. But people people think of the 1742 vote as the first vote of confidence in, in, a, in a prime minister. As I say, I, the, the, that sort of vote of confidence was used, was used before that, but, but since Walpole is seen as the first prime minister, then I suppose it is the first sort of modern vote of confidence the first time that it's it's been used in exactly that way um and that's that's much more straightforward you know it's the commons only saying what they want to happen so it doesn't involve the lords i mean the king can of course turn it down but by by the 1740s it's clear that it's effectively an expression of that this minister whoever it is no longer is able to to really dominate the House of Commons no longer has a majority in the House of Commons. And that, in the British Constitution, is the whole shooting match. As a historian, what do you make of attempts to revive impeachment? As a historian, um, I suppose not very realistic since um, uh, since it hasn't been done since 1806 was, was in fact the last, the last attempted impeachment, um, or last seriously attempted impeachment, or the, the 1805 to 1806 impeachment of Viscount Melville, um, who is a sort of sidekick of, of William Pitt. So something that hasn't happened for, you know, 200 years and more is, seems unlikely to be effectively revivable now. Um, and and really, you know, we, we have a, an effective court system. We have plenty of laws which govern abuse, you know, things that can be regarded as straightforwardly criminal. Um, most of the things that people would like to impeach other people about are usually highly political decisions, really. I mean, the fam- famously, um, people try to impeach or wanted to impeach Tony Blair over the... Iraq war in 2006 and, and they, they, they put down a motion in the House of Commons but nobody ever took it down and never, it never got voted on or debated um, and it's not going to really it's, it, it, it's, it's not a realistic proposition to, to, to revive that. Of course you know, it still notionally exists um, somebody could try I suppose but if you if you you would have to overcome all sorts of legal difficulties now um one one obvious difficulty is the um european convention on human rights and and so on which they demand certain standards of due process uh which wouldn't be met pretty clearly by an, by an impeachment in in the house of in the house of lords when you'd had the um the british judges the supreme court as part of the house of lords that might have been a different matter but you know, that's no longer true 
Um, so I think you would have to completely rebuild impeachment from the bottom up if you wanted if you wanted it to, to happen again. Other countries, of course, do have impeachment. Um, and as you mentioned, the US is getting excited about it just now. But you know, many countries have it built into their into their um, uh, constitutions. And I think that's one crucial difference if you if you actually have it as part of your constitutional arrangements, then it's then it's fairly straightforward. For example, the Lithuanian president was removed by impeachment in 2004, I think, because of campaign finance sort of violations. Um, it, quite interestingly, the the issue came before the European um, Court of Human Rights dealing with the, the question of whether whether that contravened the European Convention on Human Rights. So, you know, it can, you can see that there are issues there about about the, the convention and the current legal system. Um, in America, of course, since the 1787 Constitution, they've had impeachment built in as a way of uh, removing uh, people in office. I think the, the important thing here is that the US Constitution and the British Constitution are are very, very different things. The US Constitution is a presidential constitution. Um, we don't have a president. We have a we have a queen and we who is a you know, non-removable. Um, and we have a, uh, a prime minister who very much is removable by other methods, as, as you mentioned. Um, and the mechanism for removing a president in the, in the US is, is, is this one, is, is impeachment. So it's, you know, it's an established procedure within a presidential system. In the UK, uh, impeachment is really has no, um, no real role anymore. Um, you know, prime ministers may commit criminal offences, but if so, they have to be dealt with under the criminal law. If they commit political offences, then... You know, the, the, the solution is to either for the House of Commons to, to, to vote no confidence in them or for the electorate to vote them out the next time round. As you say, that, is, that does sound like the key difference. How can people follow the public history work that you do? Um, well, the, uh, I'm part of the History of Parliament. We have a website called History of Parliament Online, which has all of our work on it. But we also have a series of blogs. Um, the one I do, which uh, is is explicitly really about these sort of things, is called the History of Parliament blog. It's a WordPress blog, so hopefully you can find it that way or Google me and you might get there. And the History of Parliament itself uh, organisation that has blogs and you can find a link to them on the History of Parliament online website. Paul Seawood, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.